Uh, we will complete our study of this book today. Uh, we will have our third message on Obadiah this morning, and then our fourth tonight. Uh, it is a book whose message is a hard message for us. Uh, it is one of, of strong words. It is a book of warning uh, to those who would be enemies of God and enemies of God's people. Uh, it's an important message. Um, we will soon, in fact next week, uh, go back to the book of Genesis. Uh, and there we will begin seeing, um, well, a message that maybe seems more encouraging. <laughs> a message of God's sweet providence, uh, the way He cares for His people. But I think you'll hear some of that even this morning. So uh, let's look together at the book of Obadiah. Again, this is a book in the Minor Prophets. Uh, it's very short, only one page. And if you get to the book of Jonah, you've passed it. Uh, if you're using one of our Bibles uh, that's provided for you, you'll find this book on page 772. And we're going to read this morning verses 10 through 14. Verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Well, one of the clearest evidences of the state of our relationship with God is our relationship to God's people. We have seen many times before that all humanity, because of our fallen nature, we are rebellious against God. That is, until we are born again, we do not love God, we do not honor God as we ought. Well, similarly, natural man, apart from the grace of God, is not only an enemy of God, but an enemy of God's people. That is, the hearts of sinful fallen men do not love the church. Human hearts by nature do not care for God's people, do not love God's people, do not honor God's people. If you want to test to see whether or not you have true love for Jesus in your soul, here is a test you can use. Do you love Jesus? His people, the church. Justin, where do you get that from? Well, I get it from many places in the Scripture. But one example is our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus said that on the last day, we will be judged 
by whether or not we cared for Christ's people. That is, our faith or lack of faith in God will be evidence to be real or false on this basis. Did we care for Christ's people? We're told that Jesus will separate all of humanity as the shepherd separates sheep from goats, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And he will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, heaven for you. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And Jesus said that the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it to my brethren, you did it to me. He's speaking about His people. He's speaking about all of those who have been adopted into God's family. He's talking about Christians there. And He says, on the last day, whether or not we have a relationship of true saving faith in God will be displayed in this way. Did we care for Christ's people? He said He will look to those on His left. And he will say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus said these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So don't claim to have a relationship with God if you do not have love in your heart for God's people. Don't be deceived into thinking that you are right with God, if you are seldom involved with His people in a local church as He commanded? Are you caring for other believers? Are you taking their needs as your own? Do you know what it is to rejoice with others of God's people when they rejoice and to weep with them when they weep? In our study of Obadiah, we've already seen God's judgment declared against the people of Edom. We saw last week it was going to be a terrible, though just, judgment. But in our passage this morning, we learn why judgment is coming. Our passage this morning is about Edom's violation. What is it that this brotherly nation to Israel, Edom, descended from Abraham, brother of Jacob, Right? What did this brotherly nation do to Israel that stirred up such anger in God's holy heart? We learn Edom's sin is that Edom treated God's people with wickedness. Friends, this is a very helpful truth as we consider hard doctrines 
like the doctrine of hell and God's wrath. I mean, when we try and wrap our minds around the biblical doctrine of hell, it's so easy for us to feel like God is being unfair, like God is being overbearing, that that God is punishing people too much. Now, we've seen in the past many reasons why hell is the way hell is, why it is eternal, why it is just and righteous. But here is another truth that can help us come to grips with the reality of hell. Hell exists because of God's love for His own. That is, God's wrath poured out against all His enemies is poured out because of His great love for His Son Jesus and all who belong to Jesus. That just as you and I would be rightfully angry at anyone who would spurn our family members, treat our family with contempt. So God is rightfully angry at those who treat His beloved Son and the bride of His beloved Son with contempt. As strange as it may seem, the wrath of God poured out on some is intimately connected to the love of God poured out. On others. In fact, at the bottom of every sin is a failure to love what God loves. So this morning we're going to hear God's indictment of Edom. We're going to see why God was so angry with them. At the same time, we will be recognizing that it is not just Edom who has treated God's people dishonorably. This is a mark of every natural human being, every person who has not been truly born again. This is true of them. They do not, in their hearts, love the people of God. Jesus told His followers, you will be hated by all for My name's sake. Meaning, everybody out there who's not one of Mine, deep in their heart, they hate you. Let's note four ways that the lost of this world treat God's people with wickedness. Number one, in verse 10, we see that sometimes the lost treat God's people with violence. With violence. Look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. That word violence is used throughout the Old Testament to describe great acts of wickedness, rape, Murder. It's the word used to describe how the people were living before the great flood in the days of Noah, when man had become so vile that God could not bear them to live before him any longer. So when God uses this word to describe what Edom had done to Israel, he is not making a minor point. Whatever the particulars were, and we're not sure of the particulars, we know this. Edom had treated Israel in a wicked way. And this was all the more heinous because Edom was the kindred nation of the Israelites. God doesn't say because of the violence done to the Israelites these things are coming to you. He says because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. This made their offense all the worse. 
Now, because of this great violence, shame before God would be their lot, and they would be cut off forever. That is, Edom's crimes against Israel were so great that God was going to cause Edom as a nation to cease to exist. And as we saw around the same time that Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Idumeans ceased to exist as a people. Remember what God had said concerning His people. In Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Edom had done violence to God's people, and now God's curse was coming upon them. But what about today? Are there those who treat God's people with violence today? Now we could spiritualize this, but I don't think we need to. Because in our world today, there are many Christians who experience real physical violence at the hands of the world. There are numerous nations in which Christians seeking to serve and obey Christ can and can be and are sent to prisons or, especially in Southeast Asia, they're often called re-education camps or ultimately they can be killed. There are many Christians in nations throughout the Middle East, throughout Southeast Asia in particular, where we often read of um, government-sanctioned persecution. Or especially in the more Hindu parts of the world, we read of militant Hindu mobs that will gang up on Christians and beat them, sometimes killing them. In recent days, because of the things that have happened in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last decade or so, Christians have fled those nations because new governments have, been, have meant new attempts to make those governments truly Islamic kingdoms. And so Christians in those countries are facing more persecution than ever before. We read often of the burning down of Christian churches, the burning down of the homes of believers. Read Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Go online. You'll see these things. You'll hear the reports. Throughout the Bible, we are given a theology of Babylon. That is, the Bible teaches that in every age, there are governmental powers in which the people in those nations love their government. They trust their government. They depend on their government. They laud their government. And those same governmental powers target God's people and treat them with wickedness. And much of the book of Revelation seems to teach that this is only going to increase, increase as we come nearer and nearer to the day our Lord returns that it will not be simply mobs of people who hate Christianity killing Christians, but it will be government-sanctioned persecution. Christians are the meek of the earth, we're supposed to be, a people who 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 we're called to love our enemies. We're called to respond with kindness and compassion to those who would abuse us. As Christians, we are called not to take vengeance on those who hurt us. And because of that, in some ways, Christians are prime targets for violence. We seem to be easy to be pushed around in this world. We seem to be the obvious ones to be run over. The book of Obadiah puts the world on notice. 
God cares about His people. And though they are weak, He is strong. Like a mother bear who sees her cub being abused, God's righteous anger is stirred against those who put His people in prison against those who rob them, against those who burn down their homes and churches, against those who beat them. In Revelation 6, we find the martyrs who have been killed for their faith crying out in a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? We're told that each of these martyrs is given a white robe and told to rest a while longer until the full number of martyrs has been completed. But then in the next verse, we are given a picture of the judgment of God that is going to come on the world that killed these Christian men, these Christian women, these Christian children. We are told, this is from Revelation 6, then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Let the nations Let every individual be warned. If you treat God's people with violence, you will stand before their Father soon enough. And very literally, there will be hell to pay. Number two, we see that the lost stand aloof from God's people when they are suffering. So sometimes the lost treat God's people with with violence. Sometimes the lost just stand aloof as God's people suffer, like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan who walked by the suffering man on the street. The people of this world do not care to help God's children. We see this in verse 11. Look with me at verse 11 and what God says to Edom. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. The idea seems to be that Edom probably did not take part in the actual violent attack and destruction of Jerusalem, but they did play a part that makes them as guilty as the rest. Rather than aligning themselves with Israel, rather than coming to Israel's defense, they aligned themselves with Israel's enemies and worked against them. Edom refused to intervene in the attack, and as we shall see, Edom was actively seeking to profit from the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we have strangers carrying off Israel's wealth, foreigners in the gates, casting lot over who's going to get what in the city of Jerusalem. And Edom stands to the side, refusing to get involved, just looking for ways that she can profit. Question for us. How do we respond when God's people are under attack? Does it cause your heart to break? Do you long to be helpful in caring for God's people? Do you rally 
around those who are suffering. I think there is an implication for Christians here about our care for one another, about our life together here at our own church. That here we are God's people. We are surrounded by men and women bought by the blood of Christ. Men and women who are dear and precious to the heart of God. Yet we are under attack from the world. You and your brothers and sisters in this room are under attack from Satan, from our own flesh. Christian, what is your response when you see your brother or sister suffering? Do you dare stand aloof? Do you refuse to get involved just like the unsaved world around you? Or do you long to be an instrument in God's hands to help ease the pain of your brother or sister? I think there may be an implication here even for political involvement. I say very little about politics from the pulpit. But we know that politics cannot ultimately change people. Only the gospel can truly change people. But if the way we vote in an election can affect whether God's people in our society are more protected or less protected? Should that not be high up on our list of what matters to us in a candidate? There are many things to consider about a candidate, but it's interesting. In 1 Timothy 2, when God tells us to pray for those in high positions, what does He tell us to pray for? He says, pray for those in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, when we think about political leaders, this is to be in the forefront of our minds. Will this leader allow God's people to continue to live out their lives in faithful obedience to Jesus without hindrance, without persecution of any kind? And if we think our vote can make a difference and whether or not God's people are going to be more or less protected, do we not have a moral obligation to care for God's people in that way? Number three. Number three. We see that the lost of this world not only sometimes treat Christians with violence, not only sometimes stand aloof from their suffering, but number three, they go further. They often rejoice in their calamity. They rejoice in their calamity. That is, the lost of this world love to see a Christian fall. The Edomites, rather than grieving the suffering of their brother nation, instead of getting involved to protect Israel, we read that they rejoiced at Israel's downfall. In fact, look at verse 12. Verse 12, where God begins to give just this litany of do not, do not, do not. And the first thing He says in verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not boast in the day of his distress. Same sentiment repeated in the middle of verse 13. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. The implication is that Edom was being tempted to rejoice in the terrible things that were happening to Israel. Why? Well, remember, for some time, Edom had paid tribute to Israel at various times in her history. At various times, Edom had been subservient to Israel's kings. 
Now, Israel was never to treat Edom with cruelty. In fact, God gave a specific command in the book of Deuteronomy that God's people were to remember, Edom is your brother nation. They were to pursue peaceful relations with the kingdom of Edom. But just because God commanded His people to treat Edom well, doesn't mean that God's people always kept His command well. And so Edom may have viewed Israel as an oppressor. Edom may have been glad to see Israel hurt for that very reason. But as we have seen before, Edom's animosity towards Israel went back way further than that. It goes all the way back to the days of the Exodus, and even further to that, all the way back to the very womb of Rebekah in which Jacob and Esau fought. From the very beginning, there was this hostility, and this is a picture of the hostility between the people of God and those who do not know God. We have two very different worldviews. Only being born again and made a part of God's people ourselves can change this heart attitude toward God's people. Who of us likes to be shamed by someone else? I mean, when an unbeliever is just living his own life, his own way, and he suddenly sees a Christian who is walking in godliness. When an unbeliever comes around a Christian who is humble, who is sold out to Jesus, who is loving others, often that unbeliever will almost immediately feel ashamed of his sins. Remember how Abel brought to God a true honorable sacrifice and Cain did not and Cain should have learned from his brother Cain should have watched what his brother did and repented of his own sin and imitated his brother instead he saw that Abel brought a better offering and in his shame he became angry at Abel had Abel done anything wrong had Abel done anything to hurt Cain no But Cain, in his own lostness, saw this child of God and was angry because he seemed holier than himself. In fact, often, unbelievers will accuse Christians of having holier-than-thou attitudes. And sometimes they're right on. But oftentimes they're not. They just feel so ashamed because in the presence of a certain believer, their life seems to be exposed. They, They feel the weight of their sins. Think about how Christians are to stand up for God's principles of morality and how that sticks in the crawl of those who pursue the pleasures of the flesh. Those who want to sin and not feel shame for their sin do not like it when Christians start standing up for abstinence before marriage or against homosexuality or against lewd and impure speech or ungodly entertainment. When Christians do this, rather than being moved to repentance, the typical response is one of hostility towards God's people. And thus, what can make an unbeliever happier than to see one of God's people fall? This is why it's big news when a popular pastor gets caught in a scandal of some sort. This happens way too often these days. It helps the unbelieving Heart of the sinner justify his sin. See, even those Christians with all their holy talk, they're no better than the rest of us. I'm okay in my sin. There are shows on television 
I'm thinking here of the John Stewarts and Stephen Colberts of the world who regularly focus on the hypocrisy of Christians, the failures of Christians to try and make people laugh, to show how ridiculous those believers are for the things that they say and the things that they do. There is a kind of giddy glee that an unbeliever can have when seeing God's people brought low. Is there any sentiment like that in us? Could it be that we ever find joy in seeing one of our brothers or sisters humiliated or hurting? God forbid, could it be that any of us have ever had a secret delight in seeing one of our brothers or sisters struggle? Maybe there's been some other believer who always seemed to be better than you at something. Or maybe that family always seemed to have it all together while your family always felt like it was going to fall apart any moment. And deep down, you've always been jealous. You've always been envious of that brother or sister in Christ. And now that brother or sister is being brought low. And rather than weeping secretly, you're reveling in it. On the outside, we act all compassionate, all concerned. On the inside, we're, we savor their suffering. Oh, the wickedness of the human heart. We could even apply this to our church. Have we ever secretly rejoiced because we heard that another church was going through a difficult season? Friends, these kinds of attitudes show how despicable our hearts can be, even our born-again hearts, and how desperately we need the work of God's Spirit in our lives. We ought to repent of anything approaching those kinds of thoughts. We act like the devil when we rejoice in the calamity of God's people. And so we ought to confess that sin before Christ and turn from it. Last of all, number four, number four, we see that the lost sometimes take advantage of God's people. So the lost sometimes treat Christians with violence. They sometimes stand aloof from our suffering. They sometimes rejoice in our calamity. And now number four, they sometimes take advantage of God's people. Edom was certainly looking to profit from Israel's day of suffering. Look at verses 13 and 14. 13 and 14. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. The implication here is that Edom was being tempted to do all of these things and may have already been actively doing those things. Edom was trying to see what they could get out of Israel's fall. They looked to profit by handing over survivors and by turning in escaped Israelites back into the hands of their captors. Israel's loss would be their gain. Quick question. Could it be that you or I ever do anything similar to that? Could it be that we see a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling And in our wickedness, we seek to take advantage of them. The fact is, when people are hurting, 
People are vulnerable. And even fellow Christians are sometimes tempted to use their vulnerability to to our own advantage. So is this something that we're guilty of? If so, we act like the lost of the world when we act this way. Now, what do these indictments mean for the Edomites of this world? Remember, the Edomites of this world are all those outside of Christ. Every person who is still living in rebellion against God. What these indictments mean is this. Dear lost person, God has seen how you have treated His people. And He will repay you accordingly on the last day. Our God is a discriminating God. There is absolutely a glorious and wonderful sense in which God loves every person in the entire world. And we ought to celebrate that love. But there is also the undeniable reality that God has set a special love upon His children, upon those who are connected to His Son. And just as any parent takes it personally how others treat their children, so God takes it personally how you have treated His people. Have you been neglecting God's people? Even neglecting to be around them in the local church? Have you failed to concern yourself with the concerns of Christ's church? God has seen your failure. Have you lived life with more concern for your own welfare than for the welfare of Christ's people? Well, God has noted your priorities. Dear unbelieving friend, Has there ever been any violence in your heart? Any feelings of hatred or bitterness towards any blood-bought child of God? Then you have hated one for whom Christ died. You have hated one of the very bride of Christ. You have hated one one of the sheep that belongs to the Good Shepherd. And though they do not deserve His love and protection, Christ has freely given it, and you will stand before Christ and give an account. This is not just something I'm speaking of theologically abstract. You will physically one day stand before Christ and give an account. Have you ever stood aloof while one of God's people suffered? Have you ever been in a position to help and support Christ's church and you chose to do otherwise? Have you noticed the persecution of God's people in other parts of the world and decided it was none of your business? Have you seen the deterioration of the rights of God's people here in the United States and chosen to make that low on your priority list? Are you disinterested in the suffering of God's people? The strong, hard message of Obadiah is that God will glorify Himself in causing you to suffer forever and ever in just retribution for those sins. It is an unpopular message. It is not one I enjoy preaching. I am looking forward to the study of Joseph and his brothers. But we will not compromise and we will not not preach it because we need to hear it and we need to repent. Dear unbelieving friend, have you ever rejoiced in your heart when a Christian fell? Have you found glee in your soul when a brother or sister, or I'm sorry, when a believer fell into sin? Have you been quick 
to want to spread the word and tell others when a Christian had a downfall. Dear unbelieving friend, have you taken advantage of God's people in their time of calamity? Have you ever sought to gain in some way, materially, financially, in your reputation, or in some other way, on the back of a suffering child of God? If so, then you are like a Pharisee, like those that Jesus spoke against in Matthew 23, who sought to make a name for themselves at the expense of God's people. And Jesus said to them, boiling in righteous anger, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? made Jesus so angry to see how the Pharisees abused God's people. And so here is my closing question to you. Like the book of Obadiah, given to Israel but addressed to Edom, I am preaching to a church among a group of believers, but I am addressing directly those in this room who may be outside of Christ. And my question, dear unbeliever friend, is this. In light of your heart's attitude towards God and His people, in light of the neglect you have shown to God's people, in light of the wickedness that your life has shown to this point by refusing to honor God, how do you plan on escaping hell? What is your strategy? What are you counting on? There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that any of us can do to escape the day of judgment. And no good works that we have done will undo our wrongs. And God cannot be bribed. And He will not be mocked. You will reap what you have sown. Unless you are willing to acknowledge the truth about yourself and cry out to God for mercy. God is willing and even eager to show mercy to you. He can do this because of Jesus. He can forgive your terrible sins, not because they are small, no, they are huge, but He can forgive your sins because Jesus has borne the wrath that our sins deserve if we believe on Him. How do we become one of Christ? How do we become right with God? How do we have peace with this God so that no condemnation will ever come to us? So that heaven will be our home and not hell? There is one answer the Bible gives. Repent! Turn from your sin. Turn from living your life your own way. Turn from being concerned with only what you've got going on in your life. Submit yourself to Christ. See that He is good. See that He is wise. See that He loves you. And follow Him. Trust that He is sufficient. He has done everything necessary to make you right with God. Don't go home and try and clean up yourself. Go to Christ as you are. Go to Christ just as you are in your heart. Trust Him. Submit yourself to Him. That is the way of salvation. That is the way that God has provided for you. To know His great love. To be one of those children that He loves with such a jealous, passionate, intense love. Would you pray with me? Let's pray.